don't have to remember so many things. I won't tell you anything new tonight. <laughs> I just explain something old again. We are concerned at this point with the Four Noble Truths and I have spoken about the first three and the fourth one is the Noble Eightfold Path which is, according to the Buddha's explanation the path which we have to tread in order to get to Nibbana and this path consists of the same three Parts as a whole of the teaching. Sila Samadhi and Panya, moral conduct, concentration and wisdom, or karma insight. The word Samadhi in meaning concentration can be used as Samatha, which means calm, and Panya, wisdom, can be used as Vipassana, which means insight, so same thing and inside our concentration and wisdom so that's the three parts out of which the whole teaching comes and out from which the whole teaching is um, permeated now here in the Noble Eightfold Path it's also interesting that it starts again with insight and then comes the next path is then the moral conduct and the last one is the calm or the concentration and we mustn't look upon the Noble Eightfold Path as if it were a ladder that we ascend step by step or uh, rung by rung but again we look upon it as an eight lane uh, highway on which we travel on all eight lanes sometimes on this one and sometimes on that one if we were to wait till we have complete insight we don't have to do the others anymore because inside is the goal so I'm going to talk about one of the steps on this Noble Eightfold Path and it's step number six which is the first one of the concentration steps the first there are first there are two for insight then there are three for moral conduct or one's behavior and then there are three for concentration and the first one of the three for concentration is right effort all of them have the word right in front of them Samma, S-A-M-M-A in Pali and right effort means Samarayama and all of them have this word right there because all of them of course can be made also in the wrong direction the only one that actually doesn't need the word right but has it anyway is the very first one because it's right view and views are always considered to be wrong until they become right view but that one also of course has the word right in front so concerning right effort now effort is sort of to one could say the entry to the other two steps for concentration and obviously I have chosen that because of the fact that concentration is the most important aspect of meditation and effort is the entry next step is mindfulness which we have discussed in detail and the last one is concentration on that in that progression so effort has to be made now effort has to be right and there are different ways of looking at right effort first way to look at it that it has to be balanced it has to have enough enough tension in it not to lag behind and enough relaxation in it so it doesn't become tense everybody has to find their own balance in that in other words when we sit down 
and have in mind that it would be good to be relaxed we could easily go overboard and be so relaxed that the mind just goes completely anywhere it wants to or it becomes drowsy and if we make up our mind we have to really make effort and now we're going to get there then it can easily become tense and the tension may prevent us from becoming concentrated now this tension that arises is usually due to the attention on the result rather than on the effort now if we just put our attention on making effort tension does not arise but when the mind hops from making effort to the result it wants from that effort then of course tension will arise because there's no one-pointedness at all the result will not come and also because of the lack of being in one spot the mind cannot possibly settle down so the result of the meditation practice should be completely left alone when it arises it's fine and when it doesn't arise well something else will arise something always arises whatever it is nature pours a vacuum something always comes so the results of whatever we're doing should not be considered we should just do it that's easily said and one has to continually remind the mind that that's what it's supposed to be doing now effort in this Buddhist terminology also has a specific meaning and I've mentioned it once before but briefly I call the four supreme efforts they are four of the 37 factors of enlightenment and they concern our mind states and they are considered to be supreme because they are of supreme importance and because they are of supreme importance I like to elaborate them on them a little more and bring them back into your memory because they also have the application to our meditation practice now the four supreme efforts concern the mind states which are directed towards that which is beneficial now when we look at meditation obviously the mind state which is beneficial is to stay with the meditation subject and not have discursive thinking whatever the meditation subject happens to be at the time so it requires a supreme effort and the supreme effort is also called that not because it is of the utmost importance only but also because it brings supreme results we get the best results when we make those efforts so in meditation practice we have the additional ability of course to be very quiet nobody's disturbing us so we can see when the mind state is not beneficial for that which we want to do and our practice teaches us to substitute we substitute the discursive thinking on whatever subject it may happen to go along to we substitute it with the meditation subject now this substitution procedure is an action a mind action and it's one of the most important things we can learn for the benefit of our daily lives and to take that from the meditation practice into daily life is the prerogative of a meditator so that one can have this as one's um, 
shield and protection. It starts out, these four supreme efforts, not to let an unwholesome thought arise which has not yet arisen. Now obviously this is connected with a great deal of mindfulness because not to allow it to arise before it has arisen means that we are watching over our mind all the time so that nothing may enter which has any connotation of unwholesomeness negativity and an ordinary person will not be able to have that mindfulness constantly but there is a certain help a certain assistance that we can give ourselves namely we can realize that an unwholesome thought has an unpleasant feeling ahead of it. And the feeling for an unwholesome thought, which has not yet formed, is one that is heavy, foggy, just not, not a feeling of well-being, a feeling of unease and because we have that feeling we then try to find the cause for that and then the mind makes up the unwholesome thought the unwholesome thought is strictly of our own making because the same sort of thing which we think about in an detrimental manner may sound and seem quite all right to somebody else so if we are very attentive to our mental emotional states third foundation of mindfulness we become aware of one which has this heaviness dullness fogginess unpleasantness in it and then already take measures not to fall into the error of justifying this unpleasant feeling by a negative thought but substituting already the feeling and the thought didn't have a chance to arise then most people don't even notice this this all goes so quickly that it's very difficult to notice it in daily life however here while we're here it's a little easier because there isn't so much happening so the awareness of mental emotional states can make it quite clear how we can prevent and protect ourselves from an unwholesome thought now the unwholesome thought once arisen and not substituted makes ruts in the mind so that eventually we have unwholesome thoughts arising over and over and over and probably most likely over and over from the same triggers and sometimes the trigger is absurd I don't know if it's ever happened to you it happens to many people that a certain smell which is quite neutral to most people arouses a memory which triggers a very negative thought it can trigger a thought of greed also which is also of course negative because it makes makes the greed arise in one and, and the reason this happens is because the mind has become habituated to that kind of thinking no matter what the trigger is it doesn't even have to hear anything it doesn't have need to do doesn't have to have anything which it can justify the smell is already enough of a sense contact for sometimes to arouse the negativity that's why it's very important 
to protect oneself from this mishap and only most likely only meditators do this because nobody else has any clue that they can do anything about their thinking most people take their thoughts for granted that's the way it is and so it is if we recognize the fact that it's important to protect our own happiness we learn to be protective of our mind of our thinking naturally also of our mental states here it concerns the thinking process the four supreme efforts are about the thinking because the thinking is already a very strong activity and makes karma thinking makes karma notwithstanding some books where it says it doesn't it has intention in it whether we know it or not doesn't matter at all ignorance does not protect one from punishment so whether we know we've got intention or not totally immaterial our thinking process makes karma so we have when we are meditators the possibility of recognizing because of knowing what we do when we are trying to meditate of recognizing that our thinking process is not to be believed and not to be taken for granted it just is and we have learned through the meditation that we don't have to go on with it if we've been sitting here having discursive thinking all of a sudden the mind might wake up to that and think and say to itself oh wait a minute that wasn't really necessary let me get back to what i was really doing so we know already that we can stop and start again the same in daily life we don't have to go on with anything which is negative or which triggers our defilements our hindrances the mind can see now wait a minute that's not really necessary i can go along another track usually people believe their thoughts they think because they are thinking it must be so it's that is probably the greatest tragedy of humanity that everybody believes what they're thinking it actually also means that we are a majority of one nobody thinks what we're thinking if we happen to meet somebody who thinks similarly that's already very nice but exactly nobody so because people believe what they're thinking there is also implied immediately that they must be right which means all the other 5 billion are wrong it's an absurdity our whole thinking process is usually imbued with that but anyone who meditates and has paid just the slightest bit of attention to what goes on and if one doesn't do that it wouldn't be possible to meditate can change the thinking process through substitution so the first order of the of the four supreme efforts is not to let an unwholesome thought arise which has not yet arisen and not to let an unwholesome thought continue which has already arisen which i have just explained which means that we substitute once it's there we don't find a justification for it if for instance one becomes angry at somebody we don't look for the justification that that person is really bad stupid or whatever it is that we have figured out that they must be 
but instead we, we look at the anger and, and look at it and see it for what it is namely detrimental to our own well-being it's not necessary to blame ourselves for it just as it is foolishness to blame somebody else blame for, for their anger the, uh, the blaming just makes it twice as bad but we can see quite clearly that it is only detrimental to our own happiness that's all now most of the time of course one looks at it to see what has been the cause of it and then justifies it with seeing the cause now if we were to justify our anger constantly we would always find a new cause there is no end to causes but there can be an end to anger but not an end to causes so it's useless to find a cause for it the only thing to do is to remember that if we don't protect our own mind nobody else will nobody is the slightest bit interested whether we're happy or not whether we have a mind that's full of peace and harmony or whether we have a mind that's full of worries and fears and angers and problems and distaste and dislikes nobody cares one little bit because everybody else got it too in their mind so why should they care whether we've got it so we've got to look after our own mind and we can do it anybody who's even meditated for five minutes knows what it means to do that what one wants to do with the mind doesn't always work naturally but at least one has the benefit of knowing that one can try which is far more than what most people have they don't even have the benefit of knowing that they can try they just stick to their mind state often people want to know what is an unwholesome state of mind it's very simple any any thought that triggers any one of the five hindrances now that means that we remember the five hindrances well that's not very difficult either I mean we can remember five people's names can't we so here are five entities which are of they are constantly near us and they are so destructive and are with us always in the offing ready to pounce upon us so to remember their names would only be common sense desire for sensual gratification ill will, loss and torpor restlessness and worry and skeptical doubt doesn't take much to remember those five and that's essential because nobody runs around with a little notebook in their hand and, and looks at their mental states and then says, oh, wait a minute, what page was that on now? Oh, yes. We've got to be able to remember those five. And then when we do and have recognized the thought which is connected with one of the five or is triggering one of the five, we know very well that's unwholesome again the formula recognition no blame change if one can't remember that one one should hang it up over one's bed in huge letters that's what the whole path is about recognition no blame change things are the way they are there's nothing to be blamed we don't blame the weather when it gets hot or cold or rainy it just is isn't it well this is the interior weather that's all there's nothing to be blamed but here we at least have a chance to change the weather out there nothing we can do just has to stay the way it is the next one the third one is to make a wholesome thought arise which has not yet arisen bring something up which is wholesome if the mind is imbued in, in, in one of the hindrances either it's got to have something which it hasn't got greed, desire, 
it's angry or fearful or it can't be bothered sloth and torpor it's also very common can't be bothered it's a sloth and torpor um, mode or it gets very restless wants to go from here to there just get something new or it doesn't know anymore which way is right and which way is wrong it has any of those or anything else which isn't peaceful make something harmonious and peaceful arise there are so many possibilities the most obvious ones are love and compassion for oneself very simple isn't it any time any day whenever it can never be unwholesome if it has the warmth and openness of the heart compassion the understanding of one's own dukkha lovingness the appreciation of one's own efforts brings with it a contentment a state of mind which has ease in it goodwill not ill will so to make it arise one deliberately puts one's mind in that direction as I have said before and we talked about before if there's anything one wants to do the mind has to go in that direction we can't wait for the mind to do it on its own it never will what the mind is perfectly capable of doing without any direction is to have torpor in it and to have greed or hate in it it doesn't need any direction for that it does it without half trying but if we want a mind that has the opposites in it then we have to give it a direction the law of gravity which reigns over the body reigns over the mind too it's always easy to go down it always takes effort to go up the same as in a garden the weeds don't have to be watered they grow by themselves but if one wants to have a nice garden one's got to go out there and do something that's why this is called the four supreme efforts one has to make an effort now to make something arise in the mind which isn't there it's just like sitting down and watching the breath I mean, we don't usually do that either I mean, we're all breathing we've been breathing for years on end we don't usually sit down and watch that unless we want to meditate so we have to put our mind in that direction so here's the same we want to have a good state of mind we put it in that direction and that too becomes habit and it becomes easier and easier the more often one does it the mind just stays there naturally there are triggers that will try to shove the mind off this um, state of wholesomeness and then one has to be alert to that and recognize the fact that there now effort is needed the mind which is protected from the unwholesomeness from the negativity is a mind that can meditate the protection of mind also makes it possible to easier reach the purity of mind where all this kind of thinking and um, this whole convolution of mind is given up so that the original mind that which is utter purity can be touched upon and if we have already a wholesome state of mind to make it continue not to allow it to just come and go but if there is love and compassion in the mind to keep it going if there is peacefulness if there is harmony anything that is for our own well-being it is also for the well-being of others we can be a source of <clears throat> lovingness and peacefulness 
if that is what's in our mind. In the Dhammapada verses of the Buddha, the very first one says, mind is the master. And mind is in charge. It is not possible to say or do what we haven't got in the mind. Now, people often think that that's possible because they blurt out something without being aware of the fact that that was first in the mind. It comes so quickly. It's got to be there first. There's no way we can speak without having the thought, nor can we act without having the thought. So obviously our first karma is made in the mind, in the thought process. It then gets hardened through speech and even more hardened through action. But this is where it all starts. Mind is a master. If we think with an unwholesome mind, unhappiness will follow us like our own shadow. And mind is a master. If we think with a wholesome mind, happiness will follow us like the wheel follows the hoof of the ox. In an ox cart, the wheel follows the hoof of the ox. Always following. If you've never seen an ox cart, you can imagine what it looks like. The thing you probably can't imagine is the dreadful squeaking that it produces. It's uh, extremely noisy because the wheels are usually wooden. But anyway, in the time of the Buddha, that was the transport mode. So these similes that he uses are all connected with the kind of things that one could find at his time. That verse is probably the most famous verse of the whole Dhammapada, which has more than 300, and is the one which is connected to these four supreme efforts, which is the sixth step on the Noble Eightfold Path, which, is, which are four of the 37 factors of enlightenment. They become only factors of enlightenment, of course, when we have perfected them. But the perfection is not the important aspect at this moment. What is of importance is to practice. And if one practices that, those four supreme efforts, then one has a spiritual practice in data. And if one then sits down morning and evening for meditation, one isn't completely letting the mind run loose during the day, but keeps it in check so that it, when it sits down, it already knows that it has to behave itself. If we allow the mind to do whatever it pleases, and you know what that's like, when one doesn't pay attention in one's meditation and the whole thing goes berserk out the window, when we do that all day long, what think whatever just happens, then of course it's very difficult to keep one's meditation going morning and evening. But if we use those four supreme efforts, it means that we are not allowing the mind to play its usual games, but we are disciplining it. And a disciplined mind is the greatest friend we can ever have. An undisciplined mind is our greatest enemy. There is no other enemy. The greatest enemy is, as the Buddha said, an untrained mind. And a trained mind is a greater friend than mother and father and the best friend could ever be. Because that's what we do to ourselves. And the foolishness of, of it all is that we actually make ourselves unhappy with the undisciplined mind with the untrained mind for no other reason that we don't make an effort there's no reason for it now a person who has the ability to keep the mind in check and eventually always keep it in check would obviously never choose anything to be in the mind which produces gross unhappiness. That dukkha is pre prevalent everywhere is a different story. But gross unhappiness, which people 
experience constantly everywhere all the time would never be one's voluntary choice. So if one has learned to keep one's mind under control, most of the time anyway, then that choice would never occur. Only a fool would make such a choice. And this is also helpful to some people. Some people can't handle it, that's okay. But some people, for some it's helpful that when unhappiness arises and they have any of those negative states of mind and the thoughts keep going and going and getting worse and worse and how unfair it all is and how somebody has cheated one and how they have behaved badly towards one and how the whole life has cheated one and all the rest of it. When one then cuts in and says, I'm a fool to make myself voluntarily unhappy. Well, as I say, some people can't handle talking, calling themselves a fool. That's okay, they shouldn't do it. But those who can, it's very helpful. Because one takes another look and says, yeah, that is foolish. Why do I think like that? Totally unnecessary. And everybody has occasion or has um, seeming justifications for thinking like that. Life wasn't fair, people weren't fair, I mean so well, nobody understands me, and all the rest of it. We've all had those occasions. I'm not being loved enough, and all the rest of those things. All foolishness. And if one can handle it, to call oneself that, it can be a real wakening up, a real, like like an alarm clock that wakes one up in the morning and says, now come on, it's time to to get up on your feet and think about something which makes sense. If we don't do it ourselves, nobody will do it for us. Everybody's got enough problems of their own. Nobody can think for us. The only thing the Buddha can do is tell, tell us how to think. So not let the unwholesomeness arise, which has not yet arisen, not to let the unwholesomeness continue, which has already arisen, to make the wholesome thought arise, which has not yet arisen, to make the wholesome thought continue, which has already arisen. It is one of the most helpful ways of gaining a foothold in peacefulness in daily life. The first one is the avoiding. The second one is the overcoming. The third one is the arousing. And the fourth one is the developing. So if we can avoid, that's the best. But if we can't avoid, at least we can overcome it. And we can always try to arouse and develop more and more. And this is a, an effort which, of course, pays dividends in meditation, but even more importantly, maybe, it pays dividends in our whole relationship with ourselves and our life. The whole aspect of being alive eventually looks totally different because we make our life what it is by the way we think. If we have the ability, and every meditator has it, to change, to substitute, then we will also learn from that ability to substitute the ability to let go. Now, the first instance we substitute. We substitute that which is unwholesome with that which is wholesome. And it's just changing from one to another. But eventually that becomes so uh, habitual and we become very skilled at that so that we can learn to let go immediately of anything that's unwholesome. don't have to think up anything that's wholesome. We just drop it. It's more difficult. But a mind which has become trained can learn that. And letting go, dropping, not hanging on, is the pathway to Nibbana. Because Nibbana is 
non-clinging. The clinging which we do is our passport and residence visa in samsara. And the non-clinging is our ticket to nirvana. At least we can use it on our thought processes. So that's enough. You can ask some questions if you can think up any. Actually, it's, it's, it's easier to substitute. Because you see, what happens is when you substitute is that the mind is occupied with something new. And being occupied, occupied with something new, it doesn't give the old another chance to come up, or not as easily anyway. So I think the mistake that would happen there is the fact that the thought process which is happening is, ah yes, I'm going to get rid of this one, so I'm substituting the other, but one doesn't believe the other. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, like, it's almost like the mind is playing a game, mm-hmm. yeah. but one needs to believe the other. In other words, let's say one feels hate towards a person, and you know very well that that's useless and, and it's detrimental and it's unwholesome and negative and all the rest of it. So you say, okay, I've got to substitute, I'm going to love this person. Well, obviously you think, well, that's... <laughs> You know, that's very nice, but I mean, you know, don't feel a thing. So, that's too much. It's too much the opposite. It's too difficult. So, instead of hating that person, the substitution can work in a totally different way. Namely, first, the thought is, if I keep on hating that person, I'm making bad karma. I'm hurting myself. So, now that thought process is in there. The hate process isn't in there. It's, I'm making bad karma. So you've got the first substitution is, uh, I'm making bad karma. Next thought can be, well, what am I really angry at? Am I angry at the, the liver, the kidneys, the gallbladder, the hair of the head, the hair of the body, the uh, teeth, skin, or um, teeth, nails, or skin? Or what am I really angry at? Oh, I'm angry at the sound, what came out of that person. So then you have a totally new thought process. Right? which is again inquiring. It's too difficult to love somebody who just hated a moment before. But you can uh, inquire into, first of all, their own karma, and then into this, um, who you're hating, or you can have a look at the impermanence. See, all these are substitution processes, but the exact opposite is difficult. That's very difficult. So, as you do this, the... the um, inquiry into it, like for instance impermanence, well this person maybe you've met this person before and last week they were very nice and this week they're terrible, so you might remember last week they were okay, so you see the impermanence of it all and that type of thing so these are substitution processes which work you know, much easier than trying to love somebody whom you've just been hating And, and then it is better than the dropping because the dropping is um, uh, that has have to practice a long time that to make that stick it easily comes back you know you drop it for 10 minutes and it all comes back and as it comes back it's twice as bad <laughs> and it has already an, an, a greater size to it why I, I'm not sure why it gets bigger But the second time around it gets bigger, you know, and the third time around it's so big it's impossible. And so we do this inquiry. And the first thing is one's own karma. That's the first thing. A very important thing. Because karma obviously must have some resultant. Huh? So do I really want this resultant? No, probably not. So maybe I can give it up. That's, that can be m- more helpful. Yeah. 
when, when you said that, uh, clarifying the question, it helped me a great deal because I think a lot of the time what I try and do is substitute the thought, you, you think I hate that person, and what you're actually trying to substitute is the emotion rather than the thought. I mean, it's, it's the actual feeling of hate that you're trying mm. to get rid of. And when you think something, the feeling doesn't go with it, so of course it doesn't make any difference at all. And mm. you can get to the feeling and substitute the feeling. Well then, of course, you act on that and mm. you've got some chance of doing it. Whereas the natural thing to do is to think, well, I hate that person, so you think, oh, well, you try and think something <coughs> nice. Mm. Of course, trying to think something nice doesn't work at all because you're still feeling the hate. That's right. Uh, if you think it long enough, it may work, but it, it, it's a long-term process, so it's not useful. It's too difficult. So we better do it that other way with the inquiry. And anything that we can remember of the Buddha's teaching will help us at the time. Anicca Dukkanatta. Anything. And we can also... One thing which is also helpful is the thought process um, I have already mentioned. I'm making myself Dukkha. But it also doesn't always work. Because the mind can answer to that, well, so what? I still hate that person. (laughs) (laughs) That also can be very well the answer. (laughs) So it's, uh, and maybe making bad karma is very effective. That can be very effective. That's, uh, I think that is a very strong one. And maybe dissecting the person into 32 parts of the body. (laughs) (laughs) That can be very effective. (laughs) 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 Not that I know. (laughs) That would not be uh, (laughs) suitable. No, just to, to see that there's really nobody there. If we allow the emotion to become strong, the substitution is more difficult, of course. You know, the, the less we allow that to happen, the easier it is. the more equanimity remains in the mind even if there's dislike is much easier to um, substitute for than than hate so it's uh, a matter of of trying to keep it in bounds and the more we keep the mind in bounds the easier everything is so what else is new Hmm? anything Yes, that belongs to the four Brahma Viharas. And pity is the, is the uh, near enemy of compassion. And uh, maybe I'll elaborate on, on these emotions as, at another time to get the whole um, gamut of these. We have already, I have already spoken about the first and the last. I've spoken about the loving kindness, love, and I've spoken about equanimity. So that leaves compassion and joy with others. Uh, I'll, I'll use that and talk about it. Anyway, pity is a, is a near enemy of, um, uh, of um, compassion. It's not... Um, it doesn't have it. It's very. Uh, it's luckily a different word. That's why we can distinguish it. But the emotion is very, very similar. Hmm. Anything else? Yeah. But the emotion. Can you really stop it before it arrives? The emotion. Of, the emotion of anger. Or what? Yes. Yes. Um, you can feel the mental emotional state of irritation arising and knowing full well that that's going to 
develop into anger if you don't stop it right then and there. And as you know that, you can either drop it if you have that ability or try to substitute. And it doesn't have to be a substitution with the opposite. It can be a substitution with some directed thinking that this is useless, it's not going to lead anywhere. This is going to be a mess. If I'm now irritated, you know, it's going to be difficult or I'm making bad calm or anything like that. Yes, certainly, you can notice that arising before actually becoming that. You notice how it comes up and you don't become it at all. If it comes up, let's go again. So that's... Um, uh, if one is watchful, it's not difficult to notice that. And that's what this mindfulness is all about, to be watchful. A violent sense contact, um, yes. Of course it's difficult, but it's not impossible. Yes, certainly it's difficult. But uh, the, the, the only thing it might be might be improbable, but it's not impossible. It's certainly, certainly possible. And it depends entirely upon how well trained the mind is. If the mind has been trained for a long time, over and over again, doing the same thing again and again, then it will know exactly what to do. So if there's a very violent, uh, strong, not violent, strong sense contact and which arouses a very unpleasant feeling, one can be aware of that unpleasant feeling without going any further. And that knowing that that also is impermanent. It doesn't have to become fear or anger or hate or anything like that. But it's a matter of again and again and again. Especially when one knows that all these reactions in the mind make nobody else unhappy except oneself. And if one then finally one day has enough honesty to say to oneself, I'm a fool. What for am I doing this? No need. I'm doing it. And then one is more um, more intent on realizing and not allowing the mind. It's possible. It's not easy. No, of course not. If it were so easy, everybody would be doing it. It would be nice, wouldn't it, if everybody was doing it. <laughs> no, it's difficult. Anything else? Please put the attention on the breath for just a moment. And now think of yourself as your own mother and your own child. The child that wants to have entertainment and distraction, the child that is looking for what pleases, and the mother which has love and wisdom, loving the child completely, no matter what the child does, and having enough wisdom to guide the child along the right path. Feel that love of a mother for, your, for yourself, all embracing, all encompassing, always helpful, caring, concerned, soothing, supportive.
And now, think of the person sitting nearest you as your child, and you the mother. Fully embracing, supporting, and caring. Wanting to help, being concerned. And now think of yourself as the mother of everybody here. Embrace everyone with that feeling of warmth and care, support, helpfulness, completeness of love, just as the mother has. Think of your parents and reverse the roles. You are the mother, they are the children. Embrace them, love them, supportive, soothing, caring, helpful. Just as a mother loves her child no matter what it does. Think of those people who are nearest and dearest to you and be their mother. Embrace them with the love that a mother has for her children. Non-discriminating, supportive and helpful. Think of your good friends and feel yourself as their mother. Embrace, embrace them with the love that a mother has for her children. Accepting and concerned and caring. Think of all the people who come into your life 
now and then or often near or far make them all your children be their mother embrace them supportive and caring accepting helpful non-judgmental Think of any one person whom you may either dislike or have had some problem with and think of that person as your own child. Children often present problems and mothers love them anyway. Love that person as a mother would do. Embrace that person with the warmth of a mother's love. And now imagine that you have a huge family, the family of mankind. And let the heart open to extend a mother's love far and wide to as many people as you can touch with love and care and concern embracing them supporting them helpful the larger the family the more love in your heart Expanding, growing, enlarging, the feeling of belonging and togetherness, making your heart a heart of love. And now put your attention back on yourself and feel embedded in the love of a mother that you extend towards yourself, which protects and supports, embraces, is caring and concerned.
feel yourself totally surrounded by that love and concern at ease and safe May beings everywhere feel love for each other. <laughs> 